0: Well, let's turn in our Bibles together this morning to the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 4. 2 Corinthians, chapter 4, as we uh, journey ourselves toward the end of this chapter, uh, and it's our anticipation we'll be able to finish off chapter 4 this morning, um, working our way through Paul's own arguments that he's making and ways that he's preaching to his own heart about um, answering the question of sufficiency. That he raised in chapter 2 verse 16 where we where really asked who is sufficient for these things who is capable of who is enough to do this ministry and so he began this journey of five truths that he preaches to his own heart and and we get down to this last section this last truth that we have this spirit of faith in us as a result of the new covenant because we're believers and now this is what's helping him, and these truths are what's helping him. And uh, we started on that section last week, but felt like the truths that are packed in here are dense enough. They, they need more time. And so we'll come back to that again this morning. But I want to begin by reading that whole section. So start in verse 13, and just read down to the end of the chapter there, in verse 18 of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And Paul writes this, Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed, and so I spoke. We also believe, and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. are eternal. And so we began to try to understand this core truth, this, this vital main idea of this section, that our brokenness must not silence us because we have the spirit of faith in the new covenant. And we talked a lot last week about our tendency to feel shame in the midst of our brokenness and our weakness and wanting to cover it up. We live in a culture and a society that it all emphasizes strength and ability and vitality. And, and so when we are revealed to be weak or broken, uh, we, we want to cover that up. We don't want other people to know that about us. We, we want to hide it, to mask it, so that people trust us, respect us, honor us, or would want us to lead them or be involved in their lives. And yet Paul doesn't do that at all. Uh, Paul is willing to live uh, in, in some kind of comfortability with his revealed weaknesses, with his revealed fallacies and his brokenness. And in fact, he's convinced that it's out of the, all that broken mess of being a clay pot that God shines his glory brightest. And so how do you do that, and why would you do that, and how should we think through that? And what Paul's going to point to is this. We we actually should take our brokenness and view it through faith. And so it takes faith. It requires sight of the unseeable, a knowledge of the unknowable, Uh, being able to understand what God is doing when it is so very different from what it seems like you're experiencing. You know, So it really all comes down to perception in many ways. Uh, it's, uh, studies were done, and when men and women look at themselves in the mirror, they've discovered that they do it very differently. When men look into a mirror, studies have shown us that they tend to focus on whatever they think their best features or assets are. And so if they think they've got big shoulders or strong arms or, I don't know, a powerful jawline, maybe if they have great hair, I wouldn't know about that one at all. Uh, They focus on whatever their best attribute is, and and this is routinely the way most men function. Uh, Most women, on the other hand, the vast majority, when they look in the mirror, it doesn't matter how beautiful they are, it doesn't matter how attractive they are, it doesn't matter uh, how beautiful or wonderful other people think they are. Most women, the vast majority, when they look in the mirror, focus on what they perceive to be their worst feature or their worst asset, they don't like their nose this way, or their jaw this way, or maybe they don't like their hair, they don't like their figure, the way they look or talk. They practice their smile, and they know their best side. And, And I'm not faulting women, because I think we live in a culture that puts so much emphasis on the externals of life that we teach them that that's what matters the most, even though we all know the reality it isn't. And so if you think about that, a man or a woman then going out into the world... One with an idea of what their best features or assets are, and the other in going out in the world with consumed with thoughts of maybe insecurities or fears, uh, awareness of what they think are their worst features or assets. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to know they're going to relate then to others radically differently. It's not shocking then the way they're going to work in the workplace is very, very different. Or the way they're going to relate to members of the opposite gender is very, very different. Or even a sense of confidence could be very, very different. And so how do we help how do we speak into that? And what do we do with that, right? And so honestly, lots of men need lots more humility. And lots of women need lots more encouragement about the truth of who they really are their identity in Christ, their security in him. And so it becomes this identity war. It becomes this self-perception idea. And so it's fascinating then that we come to Paul, and Paul is asking this question in a very uh, kind of uh, pie-in-the-sky, esoteric, uh, philosophical question. Who's enough for this? Who's sufficient for these things? But Paul is also asking this question out of his own heart. We know that because as we've studied through this critical chapter Uh, That Paul, in other places, talks about himself being the least of all apostles, an apostle born out of time, and the least deserving of these things. Paul Paul didn't have a self-esteem problem. Paul had a right view of who he was. And so when you really see God's glory and God's holiness, you think in a very Isaiah way, who can speak for God? I'm a man of unclean lips. You see how far you are from God, and Paul saw that. And so Paul's saying, who's sufficient? But on top of that, Paul's hearing all these accusations and he's, he's fending off all these darts, fiery darts of the enemy, frankly fired from the bows of fellow believers. You're not enough, Paul. You don't speak well. You're not the best preacher. You're weak and you're abused and it's all your fault and you're not even very faithful or fruitful in your ministry. And so all of this is, is, is very theological about how you think about yourself, in your brokenness. How do you perceive yourself in your brokenness and weakness? And it's my job, as best I can, using God's word and trusting his spirit really the one to do the work and the speaking, to help you to put on lenses of faith and to see your broken weakness as God sees them. So that as you stand it before the mirror of God's word and reflects back to you your rea- your reality that you see it the way Jesus sees it. I think it drives to the very core of who we are and how we function as believers. And so that's part of the reason I wanted to take the extra time when we get to this last section, because while this is uh, part of these larger five truths of things that we have, so in spite of my weakness and brokenness, I have boldness, we have boldness, or we have confidence, right, or, or, or we have this treasure in earthly vessels, or we have this ministry, or now we have the spirit of faith packed into this last one. There are four key truths. We saw the first one last week, that you have a widened impact because of your weakness and brokenness. It's not that your weaknesses, it's not that your brokennesses, the ways that you're broken or the way that I'm broken, it's not that they shrink your ability to do ministry. These aren't holding Paul back. Contrary to the Corinthian belief system, if Paul was stronger or if Paul was more bold or or if Paul was a better preacher, if, if Paul was more fruitful, then Paul would be a better apostle. It's actually radically the opposite because he's broken, because he's weak, because he's an apostle out of time, because he is such a shattered man who once used to murder Christians and now he's trying to make converts. Because of that is why he has a wider ministry. And so we were talking last week about the fact that the ways that we're broken actually gives us greater ministry impact. It does it in so many ways, and I'm not going to re-preach that point, but, but maybe just to illustrate it to you this way. When we understand that we have this treasure in clay pots, and it's the shining glory of God, we begin to understand that, that the truth that when Jesus is weaving into the Sermon on the Mount, uh, he wants us to be a light, like a city set on a hill, uh, it, you could think of it in the darkest of night. Sailors that are lost are in desperate need of bright shining stars by which they might chart their course. I, when you and I are broken, and, and we all are, and where you and I are weak is the greatest opportunity for the glorious light of Christ to shine out of us, that it might, hear me now, that it might lead other lost sailors home. So the massive problem we have is not that we're broken and weak. It's that we want to hide it. And we thereby rob other people of the opportunity to see the glorious light of Jesus coming out of us. Stop despising your weaknesses. Stop despising the ways that you are broken. And understand each and every one of them is a glorious kindness of God by which he wants to shine out the light of Christ. And instead of it minimizing or diminishing your ability for ministry, it actually widens it. And so other people are going to encounter you in your weak and broken state. Stop trying to pretend it's not true. You're going to encounter other people in a weak and broken state. Stop judging them as though they need to be more or they need to be better. And in fact, what Paul actually tells us when saying it's a widened impact is that when god brings weak and broken people into your life stop pitying them and start realizing they're god's gift to you and god has made them broken and weak for you and when you live in that reality guess what you do you treasure the treasure hidden in the clay pot but you're also really thankful for that broken clay pot because you realize it's God's gift. It's not that you needed a Ming vase. And so that was the first one, but there's three others. Now, the way these work is these are truths that you have to believe by faith because they're Bible, because it will feel so contrary to the pain that you're experiencing, and because they're vitally true, right? It's God's truth, so I'm going to believe it even though I can't see it. I'm still very nation of Israel, we need a king, so who should we get? Let's get the tallest, handsomest, most accomplished guy, let's get Saul. And God tells us even then, man looks on the outside, but God looks on the heart. And so we are pushing against our natural propensities to look to the strengths of others instead of through their weaknesses to see Jesus. And so, and so these are truths that we have to think about as we do life with one another But there are vital truths that we need to work into our own hearts. I like how David Pallison, uh, he's passed now as a counselor, gifted minister of God's word. I like the way he put it. He said, it's like you have a loaf of bread in front of you and, and a lump of dough and you need to knead into that dough the yeast. And so when you do that, it's very little bit of yeast, and you knead it, and you work it, and you work it, and you work it, and you can't see its impact. You can't see its effectiveness. Uh, You're just working it into this lump of dough. But once you expose it to the heat, Suddenly, it begins to rise and flourish. And the radical, obvious difference between a lump of dough that has had yeast kneaded into it and one that has none is readily apparent. And one of them is nice and tasty. And the other one is flat and it is unleavened. And we use it for communion or a cracker. But it isn't nearly as good. These truths must be kneaded into your hearts. And it will not always be readily apparent that they have worked themselves all through you until you have been exposed to the heat. And when you are, and you will be, then it will become evident if these truths have been worked into your heart. Do not wait until life is hard. Do not wait until it is hot to meditate on, consider, And work these truths into your heart. Do it now. Do it right away. Do it as you communicate with others, as you disciple others. Have conversations about this with your friends, your spouses, your children. Talk about these truths. And so, what are they? Well, first one was the widened impact. But the second one is that there's inner renewal taking place. We can see this in verse 16, that there's a kind of inner renewal. And so just to get to run into it again, verse 13, since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. Uh, Remember, he's quoting Psalm 116, 10 there. Even though life's hard, I'm not going to let my circumstances dictate my praise or my proclamation. We also believe and so we also speak knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. There's so much faith here, right? I'm going to believe even though my circumstances. I believe Jesus was raised from the dead. I believe also by faith he's going to resurrect me. So you get this sense because life is crumbling. What I really need to do is rehearse faithful truths into my own life for it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. As I walk by faith through my difficult circumstances, as I respond by faith, God's going to give broader ministry. But now now he is telling us, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. This phrase here, doesn't lose heart, it's a rehearsing of what he did in chapter 4 verse 1 therefore hearing that having this ministry by the mercy of God we do not lose heart it's it's really a reference of courage Uh, it's a reference of boldness I I don't shrink back from doing ministry uh, even though I'm so weak and I'm so broken if you have a mindset that says I will do ministry once I'm stronger once I'm more mature once I can keep it together once I have it together. You have bought into a world's way of doing ministry, not a biblical way of doing ministry. Now listen, I know exactly what it feels like, and, and, and you know me now, right? Uh, for some of you, 15 years we've been together now. There are times I don't want to make a phone call because I'm not sure I'm going to make it 20 seconds that phone call without crying. And I don't want to do that. And I'm tempted in that moment, I'm just being very raw with you right now, I'm tempted in that moment to think this, I will call when I'm stronger. This verse rebukes that in my heart. I'm just owning to you, I'm with you, I don't like to do ministry that way either. But Paul says, no sir. I'm not going to wait till I'm stronger. I'm going to let Jesus shine because I'm weaker. And so he's telling us here then that the outer is wasting away, but God's doing something on my inside. And so I'm not going to stop being bold. I'm not going to lose courage. I'm not going to become timid. We live in a world that thinks God must not love you if these bad things are happening to you. Uh, They believed that in Jesus' day, right? They, They thought if someone was afflicted, it had to be sin. Remember the blind dude? Who sinned, this man or his parents? Any kind of suffering in their brains was linked to their failure or God not loving them, and yet Paul is consistently telling us that's not the case. Job, literally the very first book of the Bible ever written, was intended in part to communicate, don't be twisted about how God works, suffering is not because God's mad at you or hates you all the time. But we still want to think that way. Do you think that when it's the first book that God knew that might be a struggle in our hearts, right? That this might be a way that Satan capitalizes on it? And in fact, as a believer, even when we suffer and it's God's fatherly discipline, he says that that actually reminds you he owns you, right? You belong to him. I don't run around my neighborhood disciplining other children, but I got three of my own to work on. And so I work on them, right? And so Hebrews 12, even when you and I are suffering, maybe even as a result, as a believer of our sinfulness, God disciplines and chastens us, and that shows you he loves you and you're his son or his daughter. But we want to think, if I'm suffering, if the outer is wasting away, we live in a world, if you've got cancer, or if somebody's died, or you lost your job, or you've had economic disaster, or a tornado, or a fire, or you name it, It must be because God's mad at you and he's out to get you. And so it's really hard in that kind of culture to own weakness because we know some people will say, well, you had it coming to you. That's exactly what the Corinthians are saying to Paul. And so instead we live in a kind of culture that dreams up superheroes like Iron Man. Iron Man internally is a wreck of a human being. He is a hedonist drunkard, womanizer, that can't ever get his act together. He's got a weird, twisted relationship with his father. Uh, constant tearing, should I want to be him and get his approval? Angry, could not get his approval. And so on the inside, this dude is an absolute, total disaster. He is a train wreck. He ran off the cliff and he's down at the bottom. But on the outside, he can put on this Iron Man suit. And when he puts on the Iron Man suit externally, he is strong and he is powerful and he can like shoot laser things out of his hands. And, and the world needs him because of his strength and his money and his power and his ability and he rescues the weak and the vulnerable on the outside. This is the way our world works. Our world thinks who you are on the outside is what makes you important and worthy and valuable and paul says no you see because though my outside is completely wasting away god's doing a work on my inside though we do so we do not lose heart we do not stop ministering our our boldness is not reduced we are not muzzled we refuse to be silent that's that's all packed into that phrase we don't lose heart even though despite the fact that our outside is wasting away This inner man is being renewed day by day. Now, I have to take a few minutes here to talk about the external versus the internal. And we have to do this because for a very important reason, let me me see if I can walk us to that very important reason. Um, He's not talking about the difference between skin, that which is external, and lungs, that's what is internal. He's not talking about the difference between your big toe and your heart. He's not talking about the difference between your hair and your brain. He's not thinking in physical terms when he's talking about the external wasting away nude day by day. This is very important because if you come to chapter 4 and you hear about clay pot living and all you think about is things like physical disability, Um, loss of sight or hearing or ability to walk or to move or to use your hands or to speak even. If all you're thinking is when Paul's saying external, he's talking about what I see. Then in that moment, you dismiss this very important reality about almost everyone sitting in this room. And it's this that your deepest brokenness and your most profound weaknesses can't be seen by anybody because they are emotional and they go to the very core of who you are. And so it's really important that we understand exactly what Paul means here about the outer wasting away but the inner being renewed day by day. And I want to give you three biblical proofs For what I'm telling you, what Paul is talking about is that part of you that will remain for eternity is currently being renewed. This is a sanctification text. First of all, because we know Paul is talking about sanctification. He says he is being renewed. Well, what's being renewed? He's being made like new. He is reflecting on the process that God is using to make him more like Jesus. So anything that's wasting away Anything that's being done away with, anything that's being broken and revealed is the cutting apart of that part of you that isn't like Jesus. Now, Jesus tried to illustrate the same kind of truth in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. If your hand offends you, cut it off. There was a prisoner in Texas, a, a convicted sex offender, and uh, just frankly a horrific horrific criminal and sinner and so he got a hold of a bible Uh, he had clearly had some significant mental health issues compounded with uh, his own sinfulness and wickedness and he took a spoon and cut his own eyeball out and was trying to cut his own hand off thinking that would stop his wickedness well listen to me now blind people can still sin People with no left hand can still sin. That wasn't Jesus' point. His point was what we would call radical amputation. What we're saying is don't make provision for the flesh. And so if you have a particular sin bent, don't put yourself in a position to keep doing that. But Jesus is using the same kind of play. We understand the real problem is on the inside of man. So Jesus tells the Pharisees, right? It's not what comes out of you that defiles you. It's what's on the inside that defiles you. Paul is telling us this is about growth in Jesus as you and I are revealed to be broken and weak and that 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 reality is already our reality but as it's revealed in us this becomes a capital moment for Jesus to change us so first of all we know that's what Paul's talking about because this is all about sanctification and he's talking about renewal secondarily though we see what Paul's doing We see what he actually is doing from chapter three through chapter four. What is Paul doing? He's rehearsing truth to his own heart. That's central. That's foundational to the way you and I change to be like Jesus. We must walk by faith and continually wash our brains and our heart with the truth of what God says. And so that's why in Ephesians, uh, he tells us, don't think any longer like the Gentiles or the lost people think, but you have been trained to think differently be not conformed to this world but be transformed by what by only wearing black with no brass buttons and living in the middle of nowhere by never associating with a lost person uh, don't be conformed to this world by don't listen to their music don't go to their movies don't go to the resorts don't go to their beach is that what it says it says don't be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind it begins with truth and belief. Understanding what God says is the reality of life itself. That's exactly what Paul does for two chapters. He's preached truth to his own heart. That tells us Paul's not talking about everything that's just visible or physical because he's fallen a sanctification process. Third proof, third proof that this is in relation to internal and external question. Is because who's sufficient or who's not? That's the question he's answering. Chapter 2, verse 16. So would we be prepared to say this? The ones who are sufficient to do ministry are the ones who can do ministry without limping or who can do ministry without stuttering or who can do ministry as long as they're not in a wheelchair or who can do ministry as long as they have the best head of hair. I don't know. Whatever external thing. Is that who we believe is sufficient for ministry? The well-coiffed, capped teeth, big hair wife on the TV—that's that's that's what you've got to have for ministry. Do any of us buy that? I hope not. So Paul's not talking at all about answering the question of who's sufficient by saying, "Find the best speaker and the best runner and the best athlete and the best." No, his answer consistently to this is actually the one who's sufficient for ministry. Get this now is the one who displays Jesus. And so this text, this concept of external versus internal, is talking about everything about us that needs to change to be like Christ. And so whether it is actual visible weaknesses, some kind of a disability, um, and that could be physical, it could be mental, or whether he's talking about emotional hurts and scars and cracks and, and holes in your clay pot that you carry with you that no one can see, but it affects everything you do. Whatever that is, God is using that to change you. Or let me rephrase this. He wants to use that to change you. One of the most painful things you can go through is to have God reveal how weak and broken you really are. It's very painful. And I say this to people that you know that it hurts. But again, I want to remind you, if you want to ignore that process or duct tape over it, you are inhibiting your ability to grow and change and be like Jesus. And so Paul says it's this inner renewal. And so maybe we could think of it this way. Limping toward change. How about how about this guy Jacob from the Old Testament, right? He's a wonderful example of this exact truth. Jacob knows how to grab hold of things. Jacob, uh, as an infant, he grabs hold of his brother's uh, Uh, position right as a young man he grabs hold of his brother's blessing steals it Uh, a little bit older young man he grabs hold of not one but two wives from an uncle Uh, a little bit older he grabs hold of flocks and fields and servants and money if there's ever a guy that knows how to grab hold of something and get what he wants out of life by strength it's jacob Uh, he uses deception he uses uh, so mental strength or cunning, we can think of it that way. Crafty, he, he is like the master political manipulator. He's got physical strength, he's got, he's got intellect, he knows how to how to work the crops and the, and the flocks to get what he wants. Uh, he, you know, he, he marries the one girl that he doesn't want, Leah, but he knows how to make the situation happen so that at the end of the week he still gets the other one anyway. And exactly how bothered was he by Leah when, when clearly they operate as husband and wife and have many children. This dude knows how to get ahead by strength, by power. I was talking to Darren this week. We had our elders meeting. We were just talking, and, and I was just talking about uh, reflecting on my own life and at various seasons of my life how I've tried to overcome or deal with what I perceived as weaknesses and being broken. And and as a teenager, uh, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 years of age, I made it my motto, no fear. Because I was so controlled by fear and so anxious and so broken that the way I was gonna solve it was by never having any, you presented a fear in front of me, you presented a challenge in front of me, I was going to crush it. I was going to defeat it. And that meant if it was a bully or a bully to somebody else. if That, that meant if it was a, something I was afraid of doing, I'm going to overcome it. Somehow I could overcome it and all my world did was shrink. It didn't grow larger, it shrank. I didn't feel safer, I was more afraid. Right, and, and you go on and, and in my own life when I think through it, I, I can so identify with Jacob thinking that I can overcome where I'm weak by strength or by cunning. And then you come to this mysterious moment. Finally, Jacob is uh, so ruined relationships. He's he's driven things to the point he has to leave and he has to go back home. But he's going to go home and face his brother Esau. This is not going to go well. Uh, he stole his, his brother's blessing and birthright. So he's afraid his brother's going to kill him. So he comes up with, again, a well-contrived plan to show all of his strength. Right. So he starts sending out Flocks and herds and servants and uh, an and increasing strength to show how powerful he is, and then he even goes to wives and, and handmaidens and their kids to kind of show he has virility. So he has virility, he has strength, he has wealth. His whole hope is that Esau will become overwhelmed by the strength and power of Jacob that he wouldn't want to fight him. You get to the last moment, and and powerful Jacob is sleeping on one side of a river with all the strength having gone ahead of him. And in that night, we have this very weird story in the Bible where he wrestles with somebody all night. So we have an all-night wrestling match with the guy that knows how to grab hold of things. And here again, he grabs hold of it. And he won't let this man go. But then it's revealed to us it's not a man at all. It's God he's wrestling with. I mean, think about that. <laughs> Even the way we use that phrase. Even the way we use that phrase when we are weak and broken, I've really been wrestling with God over this. And he gets to the end of this grabbing hold kind of a night, this wrestling with what is God doing in my life? My closest friends are probably tired of Steve asking this question. But here's the question I keep asking. Am I crazy or does this seem like a lot? You ever have those moments? Uh, you ever have those moments in your life where it feels like it just doesn't rain, it pours? Right? Like it's hundred year flood. You ever have those moments where you feel like God isn't just touching one area of your life, but every single area of your life? It's not just, it's, it feels like this. One of the things I'm learning is when God reveals weaknesses and brokennesses, bro- broken areas, he doesn't just like peel apart one. Like, look, I know in the reality now, I got this picture in my head. I'm a clay pot and I'm broken all over, right? It doesn't feel like God says, okay, let's work on this one area. Let's just peel back this little bit of duct tape Steve's got here. It feels like the whole pot gets put in a sandblaster. You know what I'm saying? And this is where Jacob's at. It's all here in this moment. And so he demands, begs for a blessing. And it's revealed in this moment it's God. And there's so much in this story that we can't unpack. I just will point this out Um, God didn't need to wrestle with Jacob all night. It's God. Uh, When it comes to the end and God's done with the wrestling match, he simply touches his hip, puts it out of joint. It's that easy. It's that quick. In other words, this has actually everything to do with God's patience and kindness in dealing with people like you and me and our resistance to what he wants to do in our life. And he's not irritated or angry or Doesn't even get tired of dealing with us. He just keeps dealing with us because he loves us. And then he touches Jacob, and now Jacob has this lifelong limp. Think about all the strength, all the virility. Now, when he goes to meet Esau, he's like dude on a crutch. Where's all the strength? Where's all the virility? Where's all the power? Where has all his grasping gotten him? It's gotten him nowhere because, listen to me now, he's now in the hand of God, and it's evident by his limp not his strength. God is doing a work in you in the midst of where you're weak and you're broken to show you and others you're his. You belong to him. And it is kind that he leaves us with those lumps. It's not mean. It's not cruel. It's affection because he's using it to change us and so we limp toward change and i want to encourage you this way you should not be ashamed of speaking of the glory of god out of the broken parts of your life because there is no shame in god's game of making you more like jesus stop being embarrassed by the tools in god's hand that he's used to make you more like christ stop acting like you can't be honest about what god did in your life stop acting like if you're vulnerable about your emotional hurts and your struggles and the areas you're weak and you're broken that somehow that's a bad thing and start realizing that jacob's physical limp is the way many of us limped into church this morning emotionally And realize that's actually a kind moment that God wants you to show his glory. And so Paul's needing that into his heart. But then there's a third one, third truth or of faith that he has to believe. And that's this, that it's a temporary reality. It's a temporary reality, and we can see it in verses 17 through 18. He has to believe this by faith because, let's just be honest, um, it feels like our weaknesses and our broken areas are never going to change. And it feels like this is our lot forever. And so Paul has to come back by faith, reminding himself, this isn't forever. Verse 17, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Verse 18, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And so we have momentary and we have transient. All intended to communicate this reality, this is only temporary this isn't forever my dad used to say this phrase to me son even this shall pass this too shall pass he would say it in a funny way when I had a kidney stone there's nothing more you want when you have a kidney stone for it to pass and he was saying it kind of philosophically in a funny way with the idea this time will pass you will not always be in this pain and that's true. I mean, I, there's times, i you've heard me say this before, I've had a kidney stone. I've been in such unrelenting pain, uh, just overwhelming agony. I didn't care if they if they cut it out with a dull spoon, just get this thing out of me, right? But it here I am. And, and I'm not gonna tell you, I'm not gonna lie to you, those are astoundingly, shockingly painful, but it passed and here I am. And so there's a sense in which this pain will not be forever now if we think back though to the reality that lots of the ways that we are weak and broken are not like uh, even a kidney stone or or whatever whatever physical pain you've experienced nerve damage or um, birth or or breaking a bone because lots of these things hurt your whole life And so it's really hard to read this. Transient and momentary. Because some of these that are transient and momentary are lifelong. So that doesn't feel very transient. Paul's talking about lifelong pain in many ways. The temporary nature of our brokenness, though, is a reminder... That it's not the essence of who we are. Because God will mend us fully in glory. The temporary nature of our weakness points us to this important reality that things that are temporary here are always intended to be stewarded. Your talents are intended to be stewarded. Your gifts that God has given you are intended to be stewarded. Your money is intended to be stewarded for his glory your time must be stewarded they're all temporary you have limited quantities of them Uh, the richest man on the planet has a limit to his funds the newest newborn who has more time we would perceive than anyone else still has a limit of time not everyone in this room no matter how gifted you are no matter how talented you are there is a limit you can't do everything the best basketball player that ever walked the globe was a halfway sorry baseball player you can't do it all the best boxer would walk into the ring with a with an mma fighter and get trashed the mma fighter would walk in under the rules of a boxing ring and get knocked out you can't do it all the brightest uh, the brightest nuclear physicist still needs a surgeon if he has to have an operation. You can't do it, there's a limit. what you can do so all these temporary things all through the bible must be stewarded they won't last and so we see this developed theme throughout the bible that which is temporary that which is limited must be very intentional with how you use it and how you invest it so then when paul tells us that the ways you're weak and you're broken are momentary and transient he is shouting to us steward them use them Squeeze out of them everything that you can to both transform you internally and use them gospelly globally. He's telling us that we must think about these ways that we are broken and the way that we are suffering, the ways that we are weak, that we must steward them very carefully. I think there's, there's so many ways that that happens, right? And, and I've tried to emphasize most of all being public as you can about it. Not every area of where you're weak or broken can be from a public pulpit. Not every area that you're weak and broken can be social media accessible. There could be all kinds of reasons why your voice is limited about how you're broken and weak. I I will say this to you, though. And and I'm going to say this Um, and then I'm going to prove it. Let me me say it, then I'll prove it, right? I think it'll work better. There is no brokenness or weakness in your life, none, that can't be shared with someone to help them see Jesus. Now, I know I just said that to a room full of people and to a video that's going to go to Facebook, and I know that that statement will go forth to people that have suffered some horrific things in their life. And maybe even to some people that are currently suffering some horrific things in their life. And maybe some people in a situation, you can't just post on social media or, or publicly or email out or talk to every single person out there about these ways that you're weak and broken because some of the ways you're weak and broken have come at the hands of other people. I get the fact that you can't be huge public about it. I get that. But I'm also telling you there's somebody there's somebody you can share it with. There is. And you start praying and you get on mission for God to give you open doors to speak to those kinds of people. Now I'm going to prep you. He'll answer that prayer. And so you're going to need to be ready. And then I'm going to prep you. It is a terrifying moment when it happens. And there have been times in my life where suddenly God's put someone right in front of me. And they've begun sharing their story about where they're hurt and wounded and struggling. And I've known exactly in that moment it's time to be very open with them about where I'm broken and I'm weak, that they might see Jesus. And I don't want to do it. And I have to start preaching all these truths to my heart. And so understand that this is temporary. It won't last. You will, if you know Jesus, you will walk into glory and you will be made whole in Jesus. You will become the perfect, shining, glorious example of Jesus. Jesus. We won't need the earthly sun because of the shining brightness of the heavenly sun. And we will reflect that in perfection. And so no longer will it be in a jar of clay. It will be housed in a perfect body that he creates. That's why it shouldn't be a mystery to you that 2 Corinthians 5 starts talking about what those bodies are like. The temporary, momentary, transient nature of this could be lifelong. Lifelong. But your life here is but a blip in the time scale of eternity. So steward it well, is what he tells us. But then there's one last truth that he goes to. And he says, because there's a greater glory. We come back to verse 17. He says, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For The things that are seen are transient. The things that are unseen are eternal. So I know we now hit something a lot of people struggle with. People who don't truly know Jesus are blown apart from suffering and weaknesses. He told us that in the parable of the four soils. Uh, You can claim Christ, but then when hard things happen, you run from Jesus, and that proves you never knew Jesus. So, to read this verse and to say terrible things, weaknesses, broken areas in your life and in my life are temporary and they're preparing us for a greater glory is offensive to people like that. It's offensive to them because they want to still believe that, that Jesus is supposed to make everything better right here and right now. Hold on now, Paul. You better back that bus up. I mean, I'm talking to some broken people. People here this morning, and if you're not broken, this message isn't for you. You can take the notes, stick it in your Bible, and the next time God breaks you, you're going to need it. Because if you're not broke now, it's just because you don't know how broke you are. And so I know when I'm preaching to you that God will use your broken areas for a greater glory that's hard to people. I know I'm talking to people that are losing physical vitality in their life. And that's hard for you. I know that I'm talking to people that are losing mental acuity, and that's hard for you. I know I'm talking to people that carry about in them, and some of you may even be sitting here right now saying, Steve, all this is well and good, but if there was some way for me to unzip and expose to you what really my heart is like, you would never even want to know me because you're so consumed with your insecurities and fears over how broke you are. So for me to tell you that God wants to work in a greater work of glory in you is hard for you. But hang with me because if you know Jesus, you know what I'm telling you is true. And if you don't know him, and it's that offensive to you, what you really need to understand is this. God is on mission not to make pretty people prettier. Smarter people, smarter. Wealthy people, wealthier. He's on mission to make dead people live. And you are in desperate need of Jesus. You need to run from your sin, put your faith in him, and start walking in the light. But If you're here this morning, you know him, and you're realizing your brokenness, you need to think through this by faith. First of all, he says that it's light. It's light. I mean, are you kidding me, Paul? Light, because it doesn't feel very Light. But Paul knows what it's like to suffer. When Paul says light, Paul knew what it was like to be beaten with an inch of, inch of his life. Paul knew it was like to have friends abandon and desert him. Paul knew what it was like to not have a stitch of clothing to put on because it had all been stripped away from him. Paul knew what it was like not to be able to see well. Paul knew what it was like to be abandoned and rejected by friends. Paul knew what it was like to lose influence, power, and prestige. Paul knew, Paul knew pain. And if you can't take the light from Paul when he says this is light affliction, take it from Jesus, who knows all those sorrows and those pains. He was touched with every pain and sorrow but we need eyes of faith to see. And so what he really has here is what we call a faith comparison. When we say light, Paul is no newbie to pain. And so if you're tempted to think if Paul had was broken the way I was broken, he would never call it light. No. What Paul is saying is that when he looks with eyes of faith on what he's experiencing, it's like, and he compares it to the glory, it's like somebody put the finger on the scales of the glory side and is weighing it down. So no matter how heavy your hurts are, they pale in comparison to glory. This is why very insufficient people, this is why very... um, People who struggle with a lot of fears about acceptance and affirmation and affection. This is why people that are broken on an emotional level of um, feeling abandonment. Or people that are broken because they don't get why God uh, gave them this child or that sibling or this parent. Or they've been wounded by... This is why those people, when you look at them and say, you do know that one day, if you know Jesus... And he will walk through those gates and you're not going to be able to speak but all you're going to want to yell is Abba, Daddy. And he will hold arms wide open and he will say, enter in. Come in. You good and faithful servant. My brother and my sister come in to our father's rest. And they're overwhelmed with the concept of eternal glory. Because they realize that's when perfect healing will take place. Then they begin to understand that that glorious moment is so much wonder- more wonderful, it's so much weightier, it's so much more glorious than all of the pain and the affliction I've suffered. To call it light is not to minimize pain, it's to emphasize the glory. We need to learn by faith how to put our brokenness in the balance of eternal acceptance. Suffering and brokenness is an unavoidable part of our journey. Jesus may remember if we could have gone to, but in Matthew 19 he says, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Now here's what Jesus said, like We don't have any concept of heaven, like I'm going to get to heaven and suddenly have five dads, or a hundred dads, or a hundred moms, or a hundred brothers, and a hundred like, what does he mean? This is Jesus knowing we can't wrap our puny little brains about it, but he's telling us whatever relational or physical loss will be so repaid as to make it seem light. That's an astounding statement. Furthermore, this passage should not be taken to mean some of you will. But rather, Jesus is speaking to all his followers. It's critical, and you see it even in 2 Timothy. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy for, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. Now, who is he talking about there? Who has died with Jesus? Every single believer, right? Okay, uber middle class, hyper white church. This is where you get to say amen, Uh, to prime the pump, right? When he says we've died with him, he's talking about every believer, right? Yes. Oh wow! Well, thank you. God bless the, the three of you. No, um, he's talking about everybody, all of them. So then we're all down with that, right? We're, we're we're okay. We'll also live with him. That's Romans. I've been buried with Christ, and I walk in newness of life. I'm resurrected with him. I'm I'm good with that. Reign with him. Let's skip endure for a moment because we don't like that one. Reign with him. Man, who's going to reign with Jesus? I'm going to reign with Jesus. I'm a follower of Jesus. We all get to reign. We're all happy with that. If you deny Christ, who does he deny? Anybody, right? Everybody. First John chapter two. Um, the proof of your salvation is not just that you believe now, but that you believe until you die or he comes and gets you, right? So then, why do we all want to skip off endure? Every single believer will endure suffering. Every single believer. If you are under some notion that you can walk through life following Jesus and not suffer, I want to pop that bubble. He says, no, you won't. Paul understood that this suffering was not just for him. And so he's understanding by faith this concept of light. But then he makes this weird statement, He says that this prepares us for glory. Verse 17, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Not only does future glory tip the scales about how we see and experience suffering and brokenness here, our suffering and brokenness somehow is making us more prepared for heaven. How on earth do we think about that? Well, what if, we, what if there was a concentration camp survivor reunion? How do we know who to let in? I mean, we live in a world now uh, where we got stolen valor, right? We got these dudes running around. It's mainly guys. I'm sure there's a lady or two in there somewhere. But it's mainly guys. They run around, and they want to claim they were in the military, and they served here and there, and they did this and that. And then you start looking at them, and they didn't do any of it. Because they went to glory that should come with sacrificial service, but they never put in the sacrificial service that should bring them the glory. So how would we know? Well, wouldn't it be a mark that the Nazis put on the arms of many? And they put the mark on their arms the way you would brand cattle to dehumanize them, to demean them, to control them, to enslave them. But it would be a telltale sign of glory something meant as a scar now identifies victory and endurance and survival shakespeare gets at this and henry v i know you all are shakespeare fans some of you are And Henry V, as he portrays the king of England, suddenly find himself at Agincourt, ready to fight what became one of the most lopsided battles in all of history against the French. And if he dies, the French will probably uh, travel across the channel and overwhelm England, and we'd all be speaking French instead of English. And so this becomes this massive battle, and so Shakespeare has it, and the forces, I don't remember the numbers here, but it's something like 9 or 10 to 1. He's got nobody here. He's got his longbowmen. And so Shakespeare imagines this moment. It's St. Crispian's Day, which was a, uh, a Catholic-sized holiday. Um, and so that's the day. It's supposed to be a holiday. And so how does Henry rouse his troops into battle? And so Shakespeare writes what is, frankly, one of the best speeches ever recorded in literature And in the words of Henry V, he says this to men that they all think, frankly, they're all going to die. They don't have very much hope of winning at all. And Henry says this, He that outlives this day, overcoming these great odds, he that outlives this day and comes safe home will stand a tiptoe when this day is named and rouse him at the name of Crispian. He that shall see this day and live old age will yearly on the vigil feast his neighbors and say, tomorrow is St. Crispian. Then will he strip his sleeve and show his scars and say, these wounds I had on Crispian's day. Old men forget, yet all shall be forgot. But he'll remember with advantages what feats he did that day. Our brokenness, our sufferings, Demonstrate that the glory of heaven is well-deserved because we have suffered with Christ. Oh, how much I pity the one who claims Jesus and has not suffered for him. Paul wrote it this way in Romans, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Why, when we so often in church preach about assurance of salvation, do we leave out verse 17? Because we're too scared to admit that part of following Jesus is having all the areas you're broken and weak revealed that he might use them. It prepares us for glory by loosening our grip on this world. It prepares us for glory by killing idols of acceptance, affirmation, and comfort. It prepares us for glory by putting this world into right perspective. And it prepares us for glory by calling us to walk by faith. It is my prayer for you that God in his spirit And you, in your submission, would knead these truths into the dough of your life so that when you are put into the furnace of this world, we might see you rise and know that it's for his glory. Until the day that we're all made whole, it is good to do ministry in a room full of clay pots. Amen.